Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's do more on all things markets with Richard Bernstein, CEO and CIO of RB Advisors. Richard, when you're looking ahead to 2022, now that there's a question about the fiscal agenda here in the States and a question as to how much of a growth impact we could see from the Omicron variant, do you think differently this morning than you did a week ago? Well, Kaylee, I think that um, the markets right now are caught between a rock and a hard place, right? In the short term, we've got this slew of bad news, whether it's Build Back Better that you just mentioned, or whether it's COVID, or whether it's the Fed from last week deciding they're going to be tighter. You know, in the short term, you don't have a lot of good news. However, that short-term news could cause the better longer-term outlook as we go through 2022 into 2023. So I think the the short-term here could be a little rocky, but I think to try and trade that may be a fool's game. So what do you do? You just sit on your hands, Richard, wait, watch, see what happens into the new year. Is that the right strategy here? I think to some extent that's absolutely right. I mean, it's always cute to say we should trade in, trade out, trade in, trade out, but very few people can actually do that successfully. So so saying one thing and doing is, is another. So I think, look, it's pretty clear that inflation is probably going to be higher than people think in 2022. I think that is the most important thing that portfolios should be structured for right now. Now, that's not going to look that way in the next two weeks, perhaps. But remember, if we do shut down, let's say COVID's a lot worse than anybody thinks, and we do shut down, the supply disruption problems that we've already had just get worse. They don't get better. And so the whole notion of, the, of inflation and uh, U.S. being a price taker uh, just gets worse. Richard, I want to dig a little bit into that inflation call. When you're thinking about inflation into 2022, are you thinking we see some more deeply embedded wage-based inflation start to emerge? I think many, uh, much of the inflation excuses or the inflation sort of narrative uh, around it being transitory has suggested that it's, it's all due to the supply chain constraints. But how much of this is demand and how much of it becomes deeply embedded as we look into 2022 and 2023? Right. So, so Gina, one thing you said I think is very important, that, that the word transitory. So I think it's important to understand the supply disruptions have already lasted an awful lot longer than the 73-74 oil embargo, right? That was a supply disruption. It was a, a political supply disruption, but it was a supply disruption. And that changed the way people thought about inflation for basically the next 10 years. And I mean, it wasn't the beginning of inflation, but it changed the way people thought about it. So our supply disruptions are already much bigger, much broader, and longer than what we saw in 73, 74. But to get to your question explicitly, yes, we're having a perfect storm in the labor market right now. There's no one issue that's causing the labor market to be tight. But you can think of, you know, whether it's baby boomers retiring, whether it's COVID restrictions, whether it's immigration restrictions, whether it's the rise of unions. I mean, all these you could argue are good or bad, not my day job, but you're getting a perfect storm that is tightening the labor market. And I think that's a a substantial change that's not going to go away. Well, you talk about all these supply side issues. Supply side issues are not something that monetary policy is equipped to address. What the Fed can do is tamp down on demand. So, and, and the Fed's policy operates with a lag when we think about monetary policy. So how does the inflation conversation actually 
get solved in your view? So uh, that's kind of my point, is that I'm, I'm not sure it does get solved, so to speak. That's why I think one should bet on higher inflation. I'm not talking mm. about 1970s type inflation, but think of it as an over-under bet. I think right now you should bet the over on inflation as we look to 2022 and 2023, because you're right. You know, all monetary policy can do is to stymie demand. And that's politically unacceptable, especially as we head towards the midterms in 2022. It'd be a, a lot for the Fed to really start intervening. Richard, is that actually the case? Because my impression, certainly, and listening to the narrative coming out of D.C. at the moment, the Democrats in particular and the president is focused very much on this idea that he needs to tamp down inflation. It was interesting to see the pivot that we got from Jay Powell post uh, he was his reappointment. The, the Democrats, and I agree, we've never really seen this before, the, the politics dictates that, that they want inflation brought down. So are, right. we, are we in a different, different kind of picture here? relative to previous cycles where we've seen inflation coming through. So I'll use my analogy again, rock in a hard place. I think the Biden administration is caught in a rock in a hard place on inflation. Why? Because they reappointed Jay Powell, right? We made the argument many months ago that if he reappointed Jay Powell, he owned inflation. If he didn't, then it was the previous administration that would own inflation because Jay Powell was appointed by the previous administration. So by not reappointing Powell, he, he would say, we have a clean slate, We're, we have to fight inflation, but now he owns it. And, and so again, I think the rock in the hard place is, is the right way to think about it. Richard, talk to us a little bit about your investment strategy. If we're going to have a more deeply embedded inflation, if we're going to have faster inflation, but maybe not 70s inflation, what do you do with your asset allocation and specifically within the equity market, what's your mix? Yeah, so I think, um, Gina, the, you know, obviously you want to have pro-inflation assets in, in the portfolio. And I think, you know, most investors, whether it be institutions, individuals, makes a difference. Most investors are, are very underweight pro-inflation assets. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, getting to some of the other questions we were just talking about, one has to remember that inflation really pops up in a late cycle environment. It doesn't really happen in an early cycle environment. It's more of a late cycle environment. So I think you want to have spare tires in the portfolio. So we are over overweight energy and industrials and and some emerging markets, you know, all the traditional pro-inflation type assets on the equity side. But at the same time, our more recent additions have been in things like consumer staples Have we started to add spare tires to the portfolio. All right, Richard, before we let you go, Tom and John aren't here. And that means that we haven't talked about football yet, or at least European football. I, when I think football, I think a very different kind of football. I am not educated on this subject, but I know you like the Spurs, or as Tom Keene would call them, the tots. Do you have any thoughts you would like to share with our television and radio audience this morning? Um, well, as I've said many times, any Spurs fan out there will, will know that being a Spurs fan is like being Sisyphus. We get to the top of the hill and then we seem to roll back down. And um, it's, um, you know, if, if New Yorkers think it's hard being a Met fan, uh, Spurs <laughs> are, are probably the biggest challenge to one's personal psyche. But they're a great team. Love I, them. I, I have and, to say, uh, I, Richard, Richard, 2-2 against Liverpool. I thought it was a much better game. I appreciate it. It was a fairly controversial game. Harry Kane and what he did over the weekend. But never th this feels like a team that could be on the turn at the moment. So right, Conte, I appreciate Conte's your good, kind of... Conte's a very good manager. Yeah. And, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, but you see, that's, that's the Spurs I, story is there's always hope. There's always a sun rising. And um, <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right, Richard Bernstein, leaving us with a little bit of optimism, at least for the sports world this morning of RV Advisors. Thank you so much for joining us and happy holidays to you and yours.
Let's continue our conversation on the fiscal part of this equation. Henrietta Trey's Director of Economic Policy Research at Veda Partners joins us now. So Henrietta, it doesn't seem like this is entirely a done deal. Chuck Schumer wants to put Build Back Better to a vote in January, really calling out Manchin on his bluff. Do you agree with Goldman that if he is a no, if it doesn't pass, we're going to see a real read through into growth here in the U.S.? I think that's a perfectly valid argument and good economic policy and thinking. Um, the child tax credit alone, I think one of the biggest components that changes when that benefit lapses at the end of this year is it moves from a monthly payout to an annual payout. Never mind the drop from $3,600 a year to $2,000. It's that annual, that monthly payout that so many families uh, use to spend on food um, that I think is going to have a material impact if you have disposable income, which is you would call it for that income threshold, I think that's going to be a major driver. And then you have, of course, the uh, near-term impacts of incredible amounts of investment across all kinds of energy sectors, mm-hmm. uh, the healthcare space. It's hard not to see what this touches. Um, so I, I, I think it's very appropriate to have a downward revision to economic forecast for 2022 on the back of this bill not becoming law. Henrietta, were you surprised how strong the language was from the White House over the weekend post the Fox interview? Uh, It feels like bridges are being burnt here. If they are, is there a way back? How do they reconnect the White House and Joe Manchin after this? That's exactly right. I spoke with a number of Democrats in the immediate hours after Senator Manchin's uh, commentary on Fox News, no less. And I think the White House felt very stabbed in the back that they'd had meetings and conversations with Senator Manchin, even President Biden personally at his home in Delaware, hearing the news secondhand from a TV screen as opposed to getting a heads up from the senator from West Virginia was a huge blow. Obviously, the tensions have been fraught and Senator Manchin has uh, an election coming up. And I think it makes sense for him to cross the Rubicon into being an independent who caucuses with Democrats as opposed mm-hmm. to being a Democrat right. who caucuses with Democrats. So I think that's the direction that he's painting right now, the path that he's drawing for himself. And it makes political sense for him, but absolutely burns bridges with the White House. You can see that from the press secretary's response and from Majority Leader Schumer's response as well. I don't think there's a fear that he'll defect and become a Republican, but the scenario where he becomes an independent that caucuses with Democrats makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, if that is the case, that he is going to be largely an independent, how should we think about what the president can do next? Um, I've read a lot over the weekend talking about the fact that maybe what should be the focus here is fewer programs that are smaller, but they last longer. Kind of what's what can be reformulated here to make to make it work that is actually going to provide some benefit to the American people? Well, I think you have a really big problem that's beyond policy that Senator Manchin voiced yesterday at about the 10 minute mark in his uh, program on Fox News. When he said he doesn't support the current strategy in the process of reconciliation, when he said we should move to the original committee process, what you're talking about there is abandoning a Democrat-only package and going in a scenario where you need at least three or four or maybe even 10 Republicans to get on board before Senator Manchin will support anything. That's a huge hurdle and will have more material implications than just the uh, policy. On the policy front, I think you're not going to be in a situation where you get a permanent child tax credit 
increase. That bill alone would be $1.6 trillion. So the truncated period of time where you get, you know, one to three years worth of policy is par for the course. It's very normal in Washington. It was part of the 2017 tax bill and basically every other big piece of legislation I've ever seen. So to anticipate that this will all be short term makes sense. I think that Senator Manchin has an issue with the overall size of the bill. And so what I see is the path forward from here is you take expiring extenders package, which currently has a host of provisions in it, um, clean energy, retrofitting for your home, for example, um, and also the business expense deduction that expires from the 2017 tax bill. Cobble those together, get a portion of the child tax credit that maybe is means tested and less beneficial for families, strip out the self deduction and try to put that bill on the floor, maybe with a top yeah. bound of about 700 billion and see where that gets you. So Henrietta, where then is the dollar figure? If we're going to have this cobbled together bill that is substantially smaller, has less provisions within it, what's the total dollar um, figure for spending from the fiscal government coming in 2022? Somewhere between 300 billion and 700 billion is my new range. That's down from 1.4 to 1.6 trillion, which was my range when we were going a Democrat-only strategy. Now that we're going to need potentially Republican votes and we need to make this bill smaller, my main fear is that 700 billion is probably the top line and 300 billion is the small end. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I'd encourage investors to keep an eye on is an emergency supplemental out of the tornadoes that hit uh, uh -huh. states like Kentucky and nearby. That's must pass. That's legislation that you can get Republican votes for. So it's not outside mm -hmm. the bounds of uh, you know, conventional thought to see a bill passing with 60 votes in the first quarter of next year. And if you can tack on the CTC and a host of the other components that have bipartisan support, um, I think you can get that bill done by like February 18th. All right, just with a smaller price tag. Thank you so much to Henrietta Trace for joining us this morning. central banks are instead of tightening it is loosening policy but tightening is the name of the game in so many parts of the world and increasingly so here in the U.S. as the Fed looks potentially to raise interest rates three times next year. How does the Omicron variant maybe change that calculus? Laura Rame, chief U.S. economist at FS Investments joins us now. So Laura, given how rapidly this variant in particular seems to be spreading and given now the likelihood that the Build Back Better agenda at least in its holistic current form may not be passed on the fiscal side does the Fed have to think differently than it did just a week ago on Wednesday? You know, I think the Fed is well aware that the pandemic, that variants are going to continue to be a challenge. And these are going to come fast. And they could also, uh, these waves could pass us by also fairly quickly. I think what they're really focused on right now is inflation. And of course, step one is this really rapid taper. They want to get that out of the way to give themselves the flexibility. So, you know, give it, getting the taper out of the way in March puts March on the table as a rate hike option. I think that's where we start to get more specific with timing and thinking about the variants, where the economy is doing, how resilient we've been in the face of these challenges. Because as rapidly as the virus continues to evolve, our ability to work around it also continues to improve. Okay, so we're getting better at handling the virus side of things, but we also have had monetary and fiscal stimulus at our backs for most of this pandemic. Now the monetary side, in theory, is going to start to wane, and the fiscal side remains a question, and Goldman Sachs downgraded its views on U.S. growth for not just the first quarter, not just the second quarter, already out to the third quarter on the basis of Build Back Better not getting passed. Do you agree 
with that thesis? You know, I think it's uh, strong to pencil in the Build Back Better plan as adding 1% to GDP in each of those quarters. Um, they were probably higher than my forecast for next year, which was for 4% growth in the first half and then 2.5% growth in the second half. And that really reflects the fact that I think our economy, while still growing at a healthy clip, is just going to be decelerating back towards sort of our long run potential. That's a combination of the lower labor force participation and, to your point, the fact that these myriad tailwinds are dissipating. And, you know, you look at the Fed rate hike cycle, that is going to be a headwind to our economy. Maybe not next year specifically, certainly towards the end of next year that could materialize, but that impacts things with a lag. I do think that we're on a trajectory for slower growth, which, you know, is going to feel weird after six quarters of just really extraordinarily supercharged exponential growth. Laura, in the interest of trying to get a sense for how much Build Back Better contributed to optimism in the in the asset markets and contributed to forecast optimism, how much are you talking to clients about Build Back Better specifically? And, and from your perspective, how much optimism was um, sort of tied to this package getting passed? I think the optimism has slowly been fading. I think mm -hmm. for economists, you know, we've just been hammering that we need infrastructure spending. Um, and it's good not only for just the economy in the near term, but for long run productivity growth. I think for markets, there's been a real focus on real assets. And that's been happening partly because of inflation, because it's an underappreciated sector that we just haven't really needed to focus on. And I think Build Back Better has was part of that optimism. I think the inflation narrative is still very strongly in play there. And real assets is a place that uh, we see a lot of interest and focus from clients. Um, but I think at the end of the day, um, you know, people are have been seeing this bill struggle along for the better part of a year now. And the reality is that um, optimism, I think, had faded some time ago. It's really just sort of tempered, cautious hope that we, something will get done. Right. And when you're talking to those clients about the biggest upside and downside risks to the economy going into 2022, what are you talking most about? You know, inflation, inflation, inflation is the topic. And I actually am trying to get them to move away from just focusing on inflation to how you manage that in investing. Mm -hmm. Because what we actually see is that inflation is one of the, uh, in, a, in a high and rising inflation environment, is one of the most detrimental to equities. And it's a place where investors and uh, typically underestimate the impact of inflation on forward valuations. And so for that reason, uh, you really need to rotate out of just these big traditional um, index funds and into something that's more active and really captures the fact that equity markets for a long time now have seen this huge dispersion underneath, right? We have a small number of supercharged large cap equities pulling the whole thing higher. And underneath, there are a lot of uh, equities which are not, which are struggling at this point. And annual returns are not looking as good. So uh, from that perspective, then of course, fixed income is really, I think, going to struggle next year in a higher inflation environment. Right, and I'm glad you brought up the divergence going on within the equity market because a really clear divergence has emerged between small caps and large caps as well. When you're thinking about capitalization and the small caps versus large caps going into 2022 and then follow that on with style, how would you recommend crafting that allocation going into the year ahead? 
so for us, we're really beginning you know, to focus on the inflation protection. So focused on real assets. And I think focused on energy, which, uh, you know, has come a long way, but I think is still relatively undervalued. And it's a place where given that things are starting to feel really late cycle, I think the economy is going to be able to handle rate hikes. I'm just not sure the market is going to be able to handle it. We need to just brace for that volatility. So I think for us, it's a it's a twofold story because we really want to keep investors grounded in um, opportunistic credit, in lower duration credit options, and we want to maintain um, the help on the equity side when it comes to the inflation challenge. Laura, good morning. It's Guy. Um, can I just take you back to the taper? How much yeah. flexibility do you think the Fed currently has in the way that it's thinking about that taper? It has accelerated it. Uh, we've obviously learned that over the last few days. But if we do see Omicron taking off in January, February, how much flexibility is there still in the process? Could the Fed manage it, maybe backload it a little bit more, uh, maybe actually deliver a little bit more on the monetary front up front if we have to deal with that January, February, and then really push hard uh, into the end of that taper uh, and, and end ultimately where, where they were uh, and where they announced a few days back? If I were at the Fed, I would be kicking myself for not having initiated the taper significantly uh, earlier. I think right now they just need to get it out of the way. They feel like they want to really pivot towards the levers that they can pull that will actually do something to the underlying economy that the taper and the quantitative easing is really more a financial market um, help. So at this point, I think they really need to address the inflation and be able to give themselves the flexibility to manage that. You know, I've heard several of your guests talking about how the Fed is in a rock and a hard place. And I think, you know, this is the moment where they need to really uh, give us clarity on how they are going to manage what is absolutely going to be um, financial market volatility, how they are going to manage through that. Because it's not a question of if it's going to happen, it's just a question of when mm. during their rate hike process. If they are going to be focused on inflation, they need to prepare markets for that so that they don't just blink in the face of volatility as they have, as we've seen uh, in the last in the last expansion. Does the Fed put live on or will it be dead forever? Thank you so much to Laura Rame of F FS Investments for your insight this morning. How close are we to the end of the pandemic? That was Gigi Gronval, Johns Hopkins Center of Health Security senior scholar, trying to help us understand the threat posed by the Omicron variant. And we will get more insight now how lucky we are to be joined by Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez has done a lot of work with tropical diseases and vaccine development. Doctor, great to speak with you. From your view, are we overestimating or underestimating the threat of the Omicron variant right now? Well, I think it's not so much that we're either underestimating or overestimating. I think the problem is we're missing 
the, the weak link in our response to this uh, pandemic. We're missing that third rail, and, and that's where our vulnerability is. So let me explain. The, fir the, first, the first rail is uh, the Delta variant. That's still with us. That's still surging. Now you've got Omicron, which is so highly transmissible, uh, superimposed on that, and now you're starting to see uh, a lot of people getting infected and some extraordinary numbers put out there by the NIH director uh, over the weekend in terms of number of new cases on a daily basis. But here's the third piece that I think was our greatest vulnerability, and that is uh, our healthcare workers who are getting uh, symptomatic COVID, not necessarily sick enough to be hospitalized, but sick enough to be knocked out of the workforce for a period of time so they can't come into work. And that's happening on an already depleted uh, health system uh, infrastructure where some, we've lost, um, some say maybe is 18% of the workforce already. And now if you have all these healthcare workers at home um, sick with breakthrough COVID because the immunity, even against the third immunization, wanes pretty quickly after a couple of months, according to new data coming out of Imperial College, that's the weak link. Mm -hmm. We're not going to have the healthcare personnel to take care of all the sick. Doctor, let's talk, let's dig into that weak link a little bit because I have two questions that naturally um, result from your commentary. The first is, where is the the link the weakest nationally? Are there areas of extraordinary weakness in this country that we need to be concerned about, either regionally or uh, you know suburban versus urban? And then secondly, at some point, does that weak link? necessitate ultimate shutdowns. And I say this because it does seem to me that risk assets are sort of generally assuming that the U.S. economy will not have to shut down again. We will not be forced into isolation. But I just wonder if our, our links are weak enough, if we ultimately have to protect the healthcare workers, is the, the mechanism of shutdown the only way to do so? Well, the surges are happening uh, both in rural and urban areas. So here in Texas, in the panhandle of Texas, we're already seeing pretty bad surges uh, on on hospitals in places like Amarillo, uh, for instance. Here in our in Houston, our Texas Medical Center, which is the world's largest medical center, there's a lot of heft here. So it's it, it's it's probably going to happen here in Houston last in terms of because we have so much uh, potential capacity, but there are vulnerabilities. But even in New York and New Jersey now, where you're mm -hmm. seeing um, um, very high rates of uh, Omicron accounting for the variants, I'm really worried about that. You know, the problem is the country has no appetite for shutdowns. And I think that's why you're seeing Tony Fauci um, sort of hold back on on even talking about that. It just there's just too much political pushback right now on, on doing that. So I put out an article in the L.A. Times uh, over the weekend to see if there's some out of the box things you can do to keep our work for healthcare workforce in the workforce. And and one of them, which nobody's really commented on so far, is is should we consider a four Fourth immunization, a second boost, hmm. because we are seeing that very dramatic drop off um, from data from the UK and Germany after the after the Pfizer boost. It's a, it's good for a couple of months, and then against Omicron, it drops off very quickly. So, would a second boost sort of keep everybody in the healthcare workforce for that period of time, knowing that it may only last a couple of months, but bet, better than better than nothing, and keep people on the job? In terms of the infrastructure to deliver that, is it in place? How easy would that be to manage? I, I think I think it wouldn't be that hard to manage. I think the problem is the public perception because you're hearing 
from Dr. Fauci, from Dr. Collins, uh, others in, uh, from the CDC director over the weekend, how hard it is to even encourage Americans to get a third immunization to get mm -hmm. that booster. Only about 30% of those who have gotten two doses have gotten three doses. And I think there'll be there'll be a lot of hesitation to make that recommendation because it will just add to the confusion and maybe turn people off for getting that third immunization. So the so a lot of this is optics and how, how you communicate that to the American people and the healthcare workforce. Dr. Hotez, you mentioned the situation here where I sit in New York and New Jersey, and I have been walking down the street seeing lines wrapped around the block for COVID testing. And I know anecdotally of friends who are waiting like a week to get a PCR test back. As we face this threat of a more rapidly spreading variant, do we have the testing capacity to respond to it appropriately for people to be notified that they're positive so they can take the proper steps to isolate themselves? Well, I, th I think you answered your own question just by <laughs> telling me that people are going around the block and the answer is obviously not. Um, you know, we've never figured out testing. I, I, I don't understand why. I mean, why you can't walk into CVS or Rite Aid or Dwayne Reed or, or wherever you, the major pharmacy chain, wherever you live, lay a couple of bucks on the counter and say, give me a home testing kit that'll last me a dozen doses. I, you know, I mean, it's not without a doctor's prescription. I mean, it, it was it was never rocket science to know what we needed to do. I just don't know why we can never organize ourselves as a nation to do so many things about this COVID response that other countries have. All right, Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you so much for your extremely valuable insight this morning. He, of course, joining us from the Baylor College of Medicine. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.